Have any of you ever volunteered with Zen Hospice Project? Yay. Okay, great. Have any of you ever worked for Zen Hospice Project? Great, excellent. Have any of you done um, hospice work or care of the dying? Wonderful. Have some of you done um, engaged Buddhist practice or service work of some sort? Excellent. Um, Are any of you planning on dying? (laughs) Okay, there's the real common denominator. Good, 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 good. So, you're not planning on it? (laughs) Planning or not planning, it will happen. (laughs) So, um, Zen Hospice Project is all of these things. We're a community of practitioners, of hospice caregivers, of engaged Buddhists. Uh, We have staff, we have volunteers, we have a board of directors. Norman was one of our founders, along with several other people with the San Francisco Zen Center. We started there and then became our own nonprofit, but consider ourselves still to be a sister organization to the Zen Center. Our volunteers are the heart of our organization. We have over 100 volunteers who provide service at the bedside of the dying from 9 in the morning till 10 at night, um, five to six days a week, at two locations, Laguna Honda Hospital on a 25-bed hospice unit and at our guest house on Page Street. Our guest house on Page Street, though, is undergoing renovations any minute now as we speak uh, to put in an elevator and ramps and bring us up to the modern-day era of caregiving. We began as one bed at the Zen Center, and we've cared for thousands of people and reached out to thousands more about the importance of caring for the dying and how doing so can enliven our own lives, paradoxically, which is what I'm sure Norman will talk about tonight. I think that's all I have to say as words of welcome. You have a little information about us that you received on your way in. We do a series of public talks and events to take Zen Hospice beyond our walls. So I hope that if you enjoy this evening, you'll come back and join us for another talk or a workshop. We have grief groups and we have a wonderful volunteer program. And uh, it's very, very moving actually to be a part of Zen Hospice Project and welcome you here tonight. So thank you for coming. And I think I'll let Norman introduce himself. I wouldn't quite know how to introduce you besides to say, Norman rocks. Um, I think it's not necessary to introduce myself. I'm just, here I am. That's it. Um, When Jennifer was talking about uh, hospice, it reminded me that when we first started it in the, in eighty seven we began by serving some people in our community some years before that, and that's how we knew that this would be a great thing to do because it was so moving and so powerful to uh, be with our friends at the, in the last days of their lives, including our teacher Suzuki Roshi that we that we knew. This is, this is good work. This is what we have to do this. 
But the first thing we did is say, uh, what about all the people who don't get this care? So all this time, uh, Zen Hospice has been taking care of the indigent. Most of the people that Zen Hospice takes care of in Laguna Honda and previously in the guest house were people who basically had no one. And it was kind of a wonderful thing when there would be some person who had spent the last 15, 20 years living on the street in a semi-delirious state, poverty-stricken and isolated, would all of a sudden, overnight, come to Zen Hospice and become like a king. People would wait on the person hand and foot, give the person tremendous loving kindness. It was actually an amazing phenomenon. And and equally so in in Laguna Honda Hospital, which is famous for being this hellhole of a public hospital where only people who have no other resources whatsoever go into this gigantic ward with no private rooms. And everybody says, oh, this is terrible, this is awful. Well, it was like heaven. It's like a heavenly realm. Because these people, again, who had had nothing all their lives and been paranoid for being going to be arrested, going to be given the bums rush here and there, all of a sudden found themselves in this place where they were cared for beautifully by Zen Hospice volunteers, as well as the incredible bodhisattva nurses and doctors who took care of them there. But all all that time, I always thought to myself, and I was just telling this to Valerie, that I, I always knew that uh, we would all get old and die. I had that idea that this would happen. And I thought, now that we have established this and it's going on, when, when the Buddhist community of the Bay Area, and, and we think of ourselves as the IMC Sangha and the Zen Center and this and that, but actually there's a very powerful an important Buddhist community in the San Francisco Bay Area that is thousands and thousands of people strong and we're actually all in this community together. It's one community, really. When this community needs care, spiritual care, uh, when we're all dying, Zen Hospice will be there. And Zen Hospice never was set up for that and it it has no explicit mission to do that. But I always figured, you know, that that would happen. Just somebody would need it and we would find a way to make sure that that person got it. Whether they were in Laguna Honda or wherever they were, we would find a way. And so, uh, actually, the reason now why I think I'm here and why Zen Hospice is setting up various events all around the Bay Area is because now the Zen Hospice Project is trying to raise a gigantic pot of money so that we can make this real. And there's two things about that. First of all, to take the guest house, which needs to be renovated in order to come up to licensing standards. Very expensive. You know how it is around here. Somebody comes over with a hammer and, you know, two million dollars later, you can sit down in a chair somewhere. That's how it is around here. So it costs very a lot of money to fix the fix the building up. And also, and this is also very, very important that with that licensure, and this is what Valerie was explaining to me the other day, that made me so enthusiastic is that with that licensure, Zen Hospice volunteers and Zen Hospice trained caregivers will be able to go into our homes, which is what we're going to need because most of us will be able to be at home and we'll have family members and caregivers at home, but we'll be able to have this kind of care and and, uh, members of the Buddhist community, many of whom 
are and will be increasingly trained in this beautiful spiritual work of sitting with the dying will be coming into our homes because our families are going to need that kind of help and that kind of service. So um, think about it. Think about uh, how you can access Zen hospice services, trainings, events, and also uh, think, you know, uh, about your resources and you have to give money to IMC, I know, and other places where you belong and where you do things. So think about that. But also think, can I also look to the future of our Bay Area Buddhist community and realize that, uh, that uh, to die is one of the most important moments in our spiritual unfolding. Right? So... If we're taking care of our practice all the way along, we should really be thinking about taking care of our practice up until then and beyond. So we'll need help then. So anyway, at the end, Valerie, maybe we'll say more about the Zen Hospice Project and its needs. But I just wanted to, I was very inspired by Jennifer's words and I wanted to just share that with you. So uh, I think uh, we have a little time. Not too much, really. We could go on for weeks, easily, talking about these things and not only uh, teachings and um, knowledge about death and dying and caring for death and dying people, but also our own feelings and our own thoughts about this would be actually something to do, wouldn't it? Spend a few weeks together. Maybe just we can all get our phones and we're not coming home. We're going to stay. <laughs> couple of weeks and we could do that but we only have uh, maybe an hour so in that hour um, I just thought I'd say a few things and then uh, hopefully I won't be long-winded and uh, there'll be time for discussion conversation lately I've been studying a book that a uh, very famous Buddhist book, maybe you, maybe you know it, by the 8th century Indian pundit Shantideva. It's called Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's a wonderful book. And uh, it's about the, how to become a bodhisattva. Uh, a bodhisattva is uh, someone who is totally dedicated to awakening. The only thing that bodhisattvas are really interested in is to come to wake up in this life and everything else in life is viewed as part of that process. Nothing is excluded. Whatever it is that you're given in life is a vehicle for awakening. And bodhisattvas, that's what they want to do. Awaken. And they're really enthusiastic about this and nothing will swerve them off course. So the word uh, bodhisattva means uh, a being of awakening. And the most precious sort of moment in the career of a bodhisattva is when dawns in the bodhisattva's life this experience called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means 
the spirit of awakening. So the spirit of awakening kind of flashes across your life like a, like a bolt of lightning, brightening up the sky all of a sudden. And you realize, oh, I thought life was about, you know, getting a job and becoming important and all this. That's what they told me. But that wasn't it at all. It's about waking up. And when that flash of lightning comes and you, and you get that feeling, you look around and the whole world appears different. And you realize that before that, you had been focused on your self-concern. Because this is the training we all got. Take care of yourself. Be, look out for number one. Make sure that everything is, the door is locked and you know, you know where your car keys are and so forth. And you realize that with that self-concern, life has become so narrow. More and more narrow. And when that lightning flashes in, in, your, in, the, in the nighttime of your mind sky, you realize, oh, if I'm not focused so much on self-concern, I wake up from the dream of me and you and them and into the reality that me and you and them and us and him and her are all pronouns used to describe one person that we all are. So bodhisattvas uh, are, for bodhisattvas to work toward awakening is the work of love. There's no way to awaken. You realize there's no way for me to awaken and you not to awaken. This would be an impossibility. The only way of awakening is the way of all of us awakening together. So bodhisattvas are always working for the awakening of others and the benefit of others. So along with this passion for awakening comes simultaneously and inseparably from it a passion to benefit others and be for others without any real sense of much difference in priority between being for oneself and for others. So that's the bodhisattva path. And that's what... So Shantideva writes about this. And first he talks about the initial dawning of bodhicitta and how powerful it is and how important it is. And then he talks about how to strengthen bodhicitta because he says, you know, it's very wobbly at first. Maybe we all had a thought like this one time, but it goes away very quickly, you know, because other things intervene and we're busy, got to go to work the next day, things are going on and paying the bills. You forget about this. It seems like really, uh, what was that thought I had, you know, when I looked up at the sky, when I was on top of that mountain? Uh, it was nice, but... Uh, So it needs to be strengthened. And there's a whole kind of course of activity that, that is required to make bodhicitta strong and firm and to develop it as far as it can be developed in this lifetime. So the book is about that. And um, so first, it's required that we understand this, that we, that we, in other words, instead of having such a moment and then having it knocked out of our mind by all of our busyness, we realize, oh, it's a precious moment. It needs to be cherished and, and built upon. So first we understand that. Then we have to 
uh, face ourselves, we have to realize, oh, the conditioning in me that wants to be self-centered, that is paranoid, um, dismissive of others, gets angry, worries, is anxious. That's deep, strong conditioning. And I've done a lot of stuff in my lifetime based on that conditioning. I guess if I really want to go down the path of bodhicitta, I have to be able to acknowledge all of that and own it and take responsibility for it. So that's the next thing you have to do. And then after that, you can really make a commitment, a firm vow to develop bodhicitta. And then you have to, there's all these other practices, patience, energy, diligence, mindfulness, meditation practice, wisdom. It's a long book. (laughs) It takes a while to read it and even longer to practice it. So, uh, I was reading this book and um, all of a sudden it starts talking about death. This is our subject tonight. Death, by the way, is my favorite subject. I've always really loved the subject of death. Somebody said, uh, well, do you have, is one of your books about death and dying? And I said, all my books are about death and dying. They are, actually. All my, all my poetry books, all my other books, whatever they seem to be about, they're all actually about death and dying because it's really the only subject. So I'm interested in this, in this subject. Anyway, I'm reading along and there, and there it is. He starts talking about uh, death. So I thought I would, I would read you a little bit of what Shantideva says here. And uh, this is from the second chapter, uh, the one in which we have to do the difficult work. And unfortunately, we can't avoid it if we're going to develop bodhicitta, the difficult work of really facing ourselves. We hate this, you know. Who, who likes to face oneself? You know, we really hate facing ourselves, and we, we have a lot of sophisticated uh, mechanisms of denial and justification and rationalization because we really hate hate doing that. But Shanti Davis says, no, no. You really, if you're really going to become uh, this kind of a person, there's no way to do it without truly facing yourself. And so the title of this chapter. Uh, in the book, the second chapter is Confession. One has to look and see, I, this is what I am. This is really the truth. I can't go any further with my spiritual development unless it's based on a foundation of real honesty and truth. I can't kid myself, I'm going to leap over all this. You know, I have to first address it. So, here's some verses from the second chapter on Confession. First, Shantideva, knowing that confession is difficult, summons together all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas for support and help. And then he addresses them. He says, in this and in all my other lifetimes, I've been wandering around. I'm paraphrasing here, using my own words. I've been wandering around endlessly, blindly. And I've been doing all kinds of thoughtless things without knowing what I was doing. And I've even done things that caused other people to do 
thoughtless, blind things. And I've enjoyed it. I've been having a good time. Because my blindness, my ignorance has had its way with me. And I haven't even seen, you know, the deficit that I've been building up in my life. But now that this flash of lightning has crossed my dark mind, I see what I've been doing. And I'm standing here in front of you, Buddhas, I'm saying, I know now what I've done. And now this is not talking about like major crimes. You don't have to be a murderer or a thief. You just have to be a normal person. He's talking here about normal human activity. Normal, human, blind, careless, thoughtless, self-centered activity, which we all do. It's unfortunate, but it's true. And now I see it. Whatever I've done through my acts of body, speech, and mind, all the thoughts that I've had about all these different people that I haven't liked and so forth, all the things, body, speech, and mind, I, I admit it. And I declare it to you out loud. And here's where the death part comes in. He said, before all this gets cleared up, I could die. So please help me quickly. Because nobody can predict when the Lord of death is going to come. And our lives are very untrustworthy. They're fleeting. They're momentary. And we all must pass away. And when we do, we give up absolutely everything. But stupid me, I didn't think of this. And all this time, to protect my friends and to defeat my enemies, I've been doing all these nasty things. But my enemies, they will die. They'll be gone. And so will my friends. And everything that I possess, including my qualities, is like a vision in a dream. It fades away quickly and will not be seen again. The only thing that is before my eyes now is all these words and deeds and thoughts that I've perpetrated. And I never thought to myself, my God, I too will pass away. Day and night without ever stopping, my life is slipping, slipping, slipping through my fingers. Not a single moment of the past can I ever hope to regain. And what is my destiny but death? And then he imagines his death. There I'll be, lying on my bed, <coughs> completely unable to move. And there will be my friends around me. And even though they're standing there, they won't be able to come with me where I'm going. They'll be like as if they were a million miles away, even though they're right next to me. And when the advance force of the king of death comes to grip me, what help will be these friends and kin? 
the only thing that will help me at that time is the condition of my heart that has been created by the deeds and thoughts and words of my lifetime. That's the only thing that will be accompanying me on this journey. Then he turns to all the Buddhas and he says, Oh, oh Buddhas, I didn't think of this before. And I've gathered all of this bum karma all this time. Who can save me now? Who can protect me? I'll be lying there panicked with that attitude and I'll look all around and I won't find anyone who can save me, anyone who can help me. I might not even be able to speak. I might not even be able to move. And I'll be in that panicked, hopeless situation. So, Shanti Davis says, therefore, therefore, because of this, from now on, no more fooling around. <laughs> I'm not going to behave that way anymore. I'm changing right now. Please help me, Buddhas. I will follow your wise words and practices because when you're sick, and you go to the doctor, if you don't listen to what the doctor says and put it into practice, what's the point of going to the doctor and how are you ever going to get better? You go to the doctor and he says, do this, this and this and take these pills and you say, thank you very much. And you go home and you throw the pills away. What is the point of this? So similarly, if the Buddha is like a doctor and teaches us the medicine, we have to take the medicine and do what's necessary because the Buddha is like an omniscient Physician uprooting every ill and suffering. Anyway, it goes on for a while. But the point is, so what's, what's, why does Shantideva bring up death here in this, at this moment in the text? And it's obvious that he brings up death at this moment in the text because the recollection of death understanding, really understanding. And you know, we don't understand. But making the effort to really understand that it's actually true that we are going to die. And it's actually true that this is a place that no one can accompany us to. And it's actually true that the only way we'll have courage and strength in that moment is by virtue of the condition of our heart. When we really get that, we understand that there is nothing more important in this life than the development of the condition of our heart. And this becomes crystal clear. And we know that everything that we do in our lives can be a vehicle for that. So it's not as if we have to run off to uh, Thailand or something. Maybe we could. That would be good, but it's not necessary. It is necessary to pay attention to the way we're living and the condition of our heart and how we speak and how we think and how we act. And yes, if we're doing things as we all are, 
that are confused and lazy and mixed up. We have to notice those things and really make up our minds to do those things differently. So that's the point. In, in Buddhism, the recollection of death, the most powerful of all meditations, it really makes us see the necessity of some seriousness uh, in relation to our spiritual lives. And, you know, we live in a very oddball world in which our spiritual lives are considered to be a small, marginal part of life that maybe if we have time on Sunday morning and there's not a game on, we could maybe spend a few hours on that. Or maybe we read a book or something like that. Because spiritual life is, is an option in the margins of living. These are not the things that really count, the things that are really real. This is how we, our world works, at least the world, that, the milieu that we live in. And when you think about Shantideva's words, you realize it can't be that way. Spiritual development, spiritual life has to be not in the margins, in the center of every moment of our lives. So let's just take a few minutes to think about this. Please uh, find your breath. Be with your body. Be with your meditation. And rest in what we might call the nature of being. Just be, feel your breathing, feel your life. Here we are, living conscious beings. Breathing in, breathing out. So I'd like to take you through a uh, traditional sort of contemplation of death. If you don't feel like doing this, you can think about something else. Don't feel coerced. I apologize if I seem like I'm coercing someone. So you can literally think about something else or just be with your breath and pretend that my words are kind of static, like this crow. But if you're willing, imagine yourself, as Shantideva did, prone on your deathbed with your friends, around you. And the first reflection is that death is certain. No one escapes death, no matter how wealthy or intelligent or strong. 
a moment comes to everyone when this life, this body, must be surrendered. Death is certain. Secondly, at the time of death, when death will come, is uncertain. No one can say when we will die. Tomorrow, today, one year, two years from now, three, five, how quickly A year goes by, doesn't it? No one knows. Even for hospice patients, when the time of death will come. We can't know. And finally, at the moment of death, whenever it comes, the only thing that can help us, the only thing that can accompany us, is the state of our heart, conditioned by the deeds and words and thoughts of our life. reflection and just return to the feeling of the body and the breath, rest in the nature of being itself, let yourself be light and easy.
So thank you for being willing to spend those few moments. Have you ever thought about these things in that way before? I've been studying the Buddhist teachings on karma and rebirth in my Dharma seminar, going into some detail in the Buddhist philosophy uh, and psychology of karma and rebirth. And one thing that's very interesting about it is that when you study the philosophical texts, they make no distinction whatsoever between what we call death, uh, the moment uh, after a human life, and the rebirth into another human life. They make no distinction between that and the rebirth that happens on each moment as we die to this moment and are reborn to the next. To the early Buddhist pundits, there was no fundamental distinction between these two things. That's interesting, isn't it? It's surprising. So we don't think that. And if you think about it a minute, you know, that they felt that way, you realize that our whole notion of life and death and time and change is, is just that. It's a particular notion that we have. It's not necessarily the way it is. But think about it. If you don't die to this moment, utterly and completely surrender it. How do you get over to the next moment? Right? The next moment will be too crowded out by this moment. They can't both fit in the same place. Right? So the only way you get to the next moment is by dying to this moment completely. We call that life. Right? That's how life happens. Life means, I mean, if you were born and you were frozen forever, what kind of a life would that be? Life is dying, right? Life is changing. Who would want to live or could even imagine a life which wasn't every moment a change? And that change could not take place literally without a death. Death is change. Death is time. The idea of life and no death, or life but death later, doesn't really make sense. So, death is our friend. And death is a terrible word for it because death is a kind of a fantasy that we've created. It's a word that we stick onto a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings and experiences that we are, do not understand. And what's the scariest thing in the world? That which we do not, do not understand and cannot understand. This is really scary. So we, we get over it by just calling it death. But it isn't death. Death is not death. In fact, the real death 
is life. Death is our friend. Death and life cannot be teased apart from one another. And this is our basic human problem. Our problem is we think we're alive. And that later we'll be dead. Don't we think that? This is not true. We're alive and we're dead at the same time. We're, that's life. Is in, in Buddhism, actually, they don't make a distinction between life and death. They use it, it's a hyphenated word. Life and death, birth and death is a hyphenated word. It's one word, that's called life. Birth and death is life. So our problem is that we, we think we're alive and that later on we're going to be dead. Which is why we're terrified every moment that we're going to lose this life that we think is somehow apart from death. But we've never been actually living that life. I mean, it's a very mixed up thing. We're terrified to lose that which we never had and which we've created out of the, out of the whole cloth of our mental construct. I mean, this is, when you think about it, I mean, this is really the way it is. If we understood more what our life really was and what changes and what impermanence is, we would have a totally different notion of how to live and what to think about and what to be afraid about and what not to be afraid about. To know, to know life, to really know life is to know death and vice versa. To accept life and to accept death are the same thing. To know that life and death are the same thing is to be free of fear and anxiety, is to be awakened from the dream of self-cherishing and to open out into being. This is the only way we can live life with full courage and full enjoyment. So there's a famous Zen story about this. Uh, one guy, you, you know this story, some of you, uh, two monks go to a funeral and the casket is there and Monk knocks on the casket and he says, alive or dead, alive or dead. He really wants to know, what is death? And, and he demands of his teacher to, to tell him the answer. And the teacher says, I won't say. And he gets really mad and he punches the teacher in the nose. And the teacher says, well, you know, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> If you do that, uh, I mean, I don't mind that much. But when the story gets out back at the monastery, they're going to kick you out of the monastery. So you might as well just go away now. And he does. Goes away. Leaves the monastery. Never goes back. Twenty years go by. He's still obsessed with this, I, this story. You know, that happened. He goes back to the monastery again. But the teacher has died. So there's a new abbot. And he says to the abbot, uh, alive or dead? And the abbot says, I won't say, I won't say. And with this, he's awakened. So, he understood that the idea that we have all the time about I'm alive, later on I'll be dead, I have this thing called life that I think I have, but I actually am losing it moment by moment by moment. This is a phony idea. He, he understood that. So he was looking for a better idea. Alive or dead, alive or dead. Explain this to me. 
Tell me so I know. Teacher said, in, a, in so many words, this cannot be known. Let go. Well, it took him 20 years of confusion and grief to be ready to let go. So when he went back the second time, he was ready. And he let go. And that means he started to live, actually. There's another great Zen story about this, about Dungshan. Dungshan was about to die. He called his disciples together and he said, this is it. I'm about to die. It's been a great life. Thank you very much. And uh, he sort of, you know, got ready to pass away. But then all the disciples started crying and wailing and gnashing their teeth and grieving and really upset about it. And he he kind of basically sat up in his deathbed and said, what's the matter with you people? (laughs) (laughs) And this is what he said. He said, people struggle to live. They struggle to live and they make such a big deal out of death. But what's the use of lamenting? But they couldn't appreciate his words. So he said, okay, I'll stay alive for a while. But only long enough to plan my funeral feast. So they planned the feast and one day went by and two days went by and three days went by and they were still full of you know, grief and sorrow and everything. Finally, on the seventh day, he said, okay, enough of this. And he died. So, this is not to say that we shouldn't have tears when we lose someone. That grieving is not a good idea. Grieving is a good idea, because grieving is an index of our love. We grieve, not actually for our loss, but for our love. It's our love that makes us grieve. So we should grieve. But there's a way of grieving without anguish or despair or falling into the pit of anguish and, and, and disaster. There's a way of grieving and appreciating the love that grieving is and understanding that we don't understand, that we are confused about life and death and it's not the way we think it is. We have to understand what we are in order to wake up. And when we wake up, there's nothing but love and nothing but concern equally for self and others. So, bodhicitta, which lights up and illuminates a human life, I I really think that that bodhicitta, or whatever you want to call it, other religions have other names for it, other spiritual paths have other ways of talking about it, but this possibility that a human being could so love the world and identify with the world, not not love the world as something over there, but love the world as oneself. This is a, a human, this is the highest human achievement and the highest human happiness, right? And every religion, every spiritual path, and our great, all of our great poets and artists tell us this. So we know, and we feel it ourselves. This is, the, this is what we're here for. This is why we're born, to struggle to, to get to that. And, as we've learned, you can't really understand that without 
encountering what you really are, which is birth and death every moment. And if you're lucky enough to do hospice work as a volunteer or a caregiver of some kind, whether you're doing it through Zen Hospice or whether you're doing it because it's your own loved one, you should take this as a tremendous spiritual opportunity. Not as a chore, not as something difficult or frightening. It's, it is difficult. It may be frightening, but it's the biggest opportunity that you will ever have. Don't run away from it. Go, go toward it. Go toward it. So, that's what I wanted to tell you. And, and let me just finish with a, with a poem. I'll read a little poem. Uh, about This is uh, one of my many poems uh, about death. Um, it's from my book, uh, Slowly But Dearly. And this poem is called Meditation on Death. And uh, I should tell you, I guess, that it's an odd uh, fact in my bi- biographical fact that uh, everyone in my immediate family was born in the autumn. And everyone who has so far died in my family has died in the autumn. It's an interesting thing. I'm kind of expecting that. So if I get deathly ill in the winter, I'll think, ah, oh, good. <laughs> I have to autumn. Anyway, the meditation on death. Back of loose streets, the harder lessons sing a gritty number. Do not arrive too soon, Autumn, with your testy gifts, the dusky grape and blown leaf crust. Uncle Death always comes in your time, lumbering among his soothing friends, the soul and hearthstone, dew from roses in pitchers. Let thy kingdom come on time. Let skies fall. Voices join in tempests. Flashing light and rain. So one more time. The meditation on death. Back of loose streets, the harder lessons sing a gritty number. Do not arrive too soon, autumn, with your testy gifts the dusky grape and blown leaf crust. Uncle Death always comes in your time, lumbering among his soothing friends, the soul and the hearthstone, dew from roses and pitchers. Let thy kingdom come on time. Let skies fall. Voices join in tempests, flashing light and rain. So, thank you very much for listening. And uh, maybe we can take 10 or 15 minutes uh, for discussion. I apologize, it went a little longer than I thought. And then... Uh, we're okay, I'm yeah, we're okay? Yeah, so we'll, 10 or 15 minutes and then... Uh, I do want to give the floor over to Valerie, who's going to talk about San Hospice Project. But let's, maybe there's nothing to talk about. Who knows? But if there is, speak. Yeah. Yes?
what is the Buddhist perspective on the fact that all creatures have this uh, <clears throat> instinct to live? And when you're threatened with, with death and you're being chased, uh, this is an incredible adrenaline kicks in. <clears throat> and you're fighting to, to stay alive. And you know the difference between life and death. And if you don't succeed, you know what awaits you. Uh-huh. Uh, it's natural. I mean, it's just... Um, I, I don't. People often say, what's the Buddhist perspective on this and that? As if... I would know, you know. First of all, I don't know, but I mean, I, I know what, what I might think, so I can tell you that. Uh, and that's what I think. I think that uh, the teachings, as far as I understand them, just say, we um, understand that that's the case. This is a natural phenomenon. Life goes to life. Life goes to happiness. Life goes to well-being. And it doesn't want to go to, uh, to destruction. But... As I was saying, death isn't destruction. You see? Death is, is peace. Death is surrender. And uh, it's a different thing when, when someone uh, is lost to life. Like I have a number of friends who've lost children, you know. And this is awful because you know that that life was supposed to go on. And, and when it doesn't, there's a special anguish and grief associated with that. But when there's a long life... Uh, and when we appreciate that, uh, when the time comes and we can't, it's one thing to be attacked and run away. It's another thing to be diseased or old age is coming and death is coming and we have to face it. So we have instincts to live, of course. We would never survive if we didn't. But this is not incompatible with all that I was saying, I think. Okay? Yeah. Yes? During the opportunity to, uh, to meditate, you suggested that we visualize a place where we're surrounded by friends and people that care mm-hmm. about us. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, not everyone has that yes. scenario when they die. And, right. and, and many people die in an accident or right. from an injury. And how it is possible to uh, contemplate the condition of your heart when... When that has happened to you, that well, now you, you bring up the most important point. That's not the time to do it. <laughs> Now's the time. Now's the time to do it. Yeah, that's the point, is that not knowing you know, what's going to happen to us, uh, now is the time. Now is the time. There's only one time for spiritual practice, and it's always now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Stan. Oh, you have to get the microphone. Yeah. I think maybe that this is being recorded, so the microphone is needed for that. Yeah. Um, as you know, um, I'm in training to be a hospice volunteer. And I'm going to... There we go. Okay. And I get my first patient next week. Um, how do you, Norman, go about sort of ascertaining where the patient is, where the family is, and then find an appropriate response to 
wherever that is, and then go with that, and then keep mm-hmm. working in it as they keep changing. In our first training, I talked a lot about the different family styles of dealing with death, mm-hmm. and some families being in denial, and the person wanting to talk about it, and then how to deal with yeah. it. I mean, there's so many different issues. But uh-huh. I mean, just sort of intuitively, how do you assess yeah. where they are at any given point, especially when you're starting out with them? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first of all, I should say that I'm not an expert no, hospice no. person by any means, you know, and there, and there are people who uh, probably would have a more informed response to that question. Uh, I've been at the bedside of, of people in the dying process a number of times, but uh, not so many times, really. Um, but uh, I'm a great advocate of uh, not knowing so much, you know. It's better to know. I mean, I think, you know, we take different trainings and it's good to listen and pay attention and digest the material and then forget it, <laughs> you know, because... Uh, Nothing worse than a little. I was talking to a friend of mine who, uh, who's a a doctor, psychiatrist, and she had a uh, daughter who, at one point in her development, was fairly seriously paranoid that her parents were trying to kill her. And uh, my friend described this to me, and 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 they, you know, they talked about it, and they. It persisted for some time, and sometimes it was fairly severe. But they just talked about it in a matter-of-fact way, and eventually she seemingly grew out of it. And she said, she said, I'm so glad that I didn't make a diagnosis and put my daughter in the system. Because they would have had a lot of knowledge about this, and they would have done a lot of things about it, and I think that it would have made matters worse. Now, maybe, you know, she was lucky, you know, because, you know, the daughter turned out to be okay. But it's like that, you know. So, so now she knew. She knew a lot of stuff, but she decided that she would not activate all her knowledge. She would wait and see and just be sensitive. So I think it's like that. You know, you, you, you approach, I think you approach a dying person, actually, the way you approach all dying people, which means everybody, right? We're all, we're all hospice workers, right? Isn't that right? And patients, right? So, and that is, uh, let me listen to what this person is saying and try to understand and let me be a human being with this person. Let me not be afraid to express myself and, and my own thoughts and feelings and, and you know, uh, put out what I feel and think in response to what I'm hearing. And, and, uh, and uh, I think that what you learn from, from your training and from your experience will be there naturally when you need it. You don't have to think and scheme. And, you know, it's, it's, the, it's activating that part of our minds that manipulates and thinks and schemes, which is so, such a highly developed part of our minds that I think becomes a problem in this kind of work. Yeah. So anyway, you're going to have a, a, quite an adventure. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really something. Yeah. 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 Real body office. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. The microphone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you.
very much for what you have shared. I appreciate it very much. Question I have is when you say a person knows their heart, what exactly, or needs to know their heart at that moment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I say, what does that mean and why? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what I was trying to say was that recollecting the reality of death motivates us to be concerned about the condition of our heart, not at the time when we're passing out of this life, but all the time, all the time. Why? Because we know that when our heart is out of whack, when we're not in tune with ourselves and not in tune with our lives, not in tune with the best that's in us, our life becomes subtly destructive, confused, and not of benefit to those around us. Now, I say this because I know this to be true in myself. It happens to say this also in the Buddhist scriptures, which is encouraging. <laughs> but I wouldn't really believe it, particularly if I only read it there, if I didn't know it myself. I know myself that I'm a much happier person and a much greater benefit to those around me when I try to come forward in my thoughts, in my words, and in my deeds from the best that's within me. And when I try to cultivate that habit, instead of thoughtlessly doing what comes naturally to, to be maybe selfish or thoughtless or whatever, which I also am on many occasions. And when that happens, I'm regretful of that and I try my best to overcome that. So, so that's why. That's the motivation. And, and the recollection of death helps to remind me about, you know, when, does it make a difference when you actually pass over? Yes. Yes. And that's what Shanti Dave is talking about. It does make a difference. When you actually pass over, if you have lived that sort of life, to whatever extent has been possible for you, yes, there's less fear, there's less confusion, there's less panic, there's less terror. That's, that's what he's saying. Now... I don't want to make any guarantees about that. <laughs> I remember uh, my dear friend, uh, Philip Whalen, who was a teacher of mine and a poet uh, and a dear, dear friend of many, many years. He would always say, and he was in Laguna Honda dying for a number of years, and I would visit him there all the time. And he used to always say, he used to say, I think that maybe when I die, I'm going to die screaming for my mama. He used to say that. He didn't. But, uh, and he was a many, many years a Zen priest and practitioner. So in other words, what I'm saying is, it's probably not a good idea to think, if I do this, then for sure that's going to happen. Life is a little bit more various than that. <laughs> but I think more or less it's true. You know, more or less, it's true. Just don't count on it or don't you know, bank on it, so to speak. Uh, because then what, what happens if you have a moment of panic, then you say, oh, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. And then what happens? More panic comes, right? Better to be humble and say, OK, well, I'm hoping and I'm and I'm doing my best throughout my life uh, to have uh, the kind of heart that will accept death and move into it in, in, in a way that is good. And I'm hoping that I will. And just in case I don't, I hope I'm ready for that. 
you know. So, but that's what Shantideva is arguing. That's what he's saying. He's saying that if you take care of yourself spiritually every moment, or as many moments as you can remember to do it, at the time of death, your time will be not only not terrifying and full of panic, but also extremely spiritually beneficial. And there are people who in their dying, and every long-time hospice worker knows this, there are people who in their dying create miracles. They bring people together, they create love, they heal wounds in the course of their dying. And these are people who live this way. And they don't have to be meditators. They don't have to be Buddhists, obviously. But people who live lives of goodness and caring uh, can do this in their dying, and, and they sometimes do. And, and uh, those are people who've been around those deaths never, ever forget them the rest of their lives. And that happens. Yeah. Yeah, Carolina. Thank you. Is this on? Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been um, interested in the last line of the Metta Sutta. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they outline this program of how to live, and then they promise you that you'll be saved from the duality of birth and death. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get it. Hmm. Well, that's not what the Metta Sutta really says. That's a fake version. Oh. <laughs> uh, what it really says is uh, that you will never be reborn again. If you live this way, you will never be reborn again. Because uh, that's a text of the Pali Canon in which it's a long story. But in that, in that approach to Buddhism, the goal is peace. Never to be reborn again in this veil of tears. So that's what it's saying, that if, if you live a life of, uh, of, of goodness and spirituality, at the time of death, there will be no residual uh, uh, anxiety or disturbance or restlessness, and you'll really be able to pass away completely into peace. That's what it says. And, and because the Zen school, so long, see, I actually introduced that text into the Zen canon uh, when I was abbot of Zen Center, because I thought that there were various problems with, with Zen as it was practiced in America and that we needed, for one thing, to remember that the whole thing is supposed to be about loving kindness and compassion and that's what that sutra is about. So I put that in the, in, the, in the sutra books and many of the Zen centers now use it. But since the goal in Zen is not to go to peace and not to be reborn again, but in fact to be reborn over and over again for the benefit of others, we tinkered a little bit with the line. And we changed it so that so that if, if a Theravada person looks at the Metta Sutta in our Zen text, they become very upset because they say, what are you doing? How did that happen? And, and if that ever happens to you, you can blame it on me because I'm the one who is responsible for that. Although the translation that I made was different from that one. That one's a later version. The one that I had was you will never be reborn again in the cycle of creation of suffering for self and others. You'll be reborn again in love, but not in the cycle of... So I just added a phrase, clarifying. (laughs) (laughs) 
anyway, that's the religion biz for you, you know. <laughs> that's what happens. And, uh, and, and wouldn't it be interesting to think, and, and think about this, folks. How likely is it, how likely is it that in the 2,800 years since, let's say, that sutra was written down, how likely is it that in all that time I'm the only one who made a little change here or there? How likely do you think that is? Very unlikely, right? So every scripture that you ever read, right, in the Bible or anywhere else, Think about that. Norman, so how did it originate? When you got it before you tinkered it, what did it say? That's what it said. You'll be free from the reality of the... You'll, be, you'll be free from rebirth. You'll be free from birth. Okay, and then... You, you won't be reborn anymore. Okay, period. And, then, and I added the part, you won't be... That was a period. You won't be reborn anymore. And I added, you won't be reborn into the cycle of creation of suffering for self or others. Which, in effect, it, that's what it means, except they mean it like you won't be reborn, period, you know, because according to the Theravada view of life, at least one version of it, life is, all life is the creation of suffering for self and others. And the goal is to escape from that. But from the Bodhisattva point of view, there is life that is full of suffering and there is life that's full of love. And we want to switch from one to the other. And we want to be reborn again and again, even though it's trying. Definitely life is like not easy. I mean, think what it would be like to not have body, get sick, trouble, you know, you need money and everything. Wouldn't it be nice not to have to deal with all that? So it is trying, but we're willing to come back over and over again into life, not for the pleasures that we get out of it, but out of love. That's the Bodhisattva path. But what it said was, we'll never be reborn again. Yeah. Does that help your question or you still have yeah, a question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's selling salvation. You mean well, saying that? You won't be reborn, you won't, you won't have to deal with all this. You know, you'll, if you'll you, get peace. If, yeah, yeah, if you, if you practice, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it is. Yeah, it's, there's and I wondered why we weren't uh, advocating it more. Oh, well, that's what I was trying to do tonight. I, oh. I hope you got the message. <laughs> uh, one last thing, maybe, and then yes. I remember you saying that in uh, reading the passage by Shanti Deva that he reflected sort of on his bum karma up to date, yeah. and that inspired him to. Develop the condition of his heart. Yeah. So I was wondering if um, sort of developing your karma or developing skillful actions, is that synonymous with developing the condition of your heart? Yeah. yeah that's Are they the same thing? That's what I meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, so you want to talk a little bit, Valerie? Yeah, about Zen Hospice. Thanks again, everybody. And, uh, I hope that we will, we're supposed to go till nine, so, because I get a long drive, so we'll go till nine. Thank you. Um, My name is Valerie, and I'm the development director for the Zen Hospice Project, and I'm also a member of the Sangha. So it's a great privilege to 
here, Norman, tonight and to be able to tell you a little bit about what we're doing. Um, strangely enough, I've been listening all week to Gil on a tape talking about the Dharma of IMC. And uh, he's very clear in the tape, and there's a whole discussion about never... Um, that everything here is done on a completely open Ghana basis. And I believe that's one of the beautiful things about IMC. So before I spoke tonight, I checked in with Gil and said, you know, I'm, I kind of like to do this little fundraising talk. <laughs> and I said, okay, he said, yes, be impassioned. <laughs> it's for Zen Hospice, be impassioned. And so I'll have a little impassionment here. Um, it's a $4 million campaign to renovate the house, to be able to serve people in the house um, who are dying, and also to become a licensed hospice, which we've never been. We've always been a volunteer organization. And in the beginning, Zen Hospice, um, there, were, there were only three or four hospices in the whole country when Zen Hospice was created. And Zen Hospice is so well known because it really led the development of the philosophy of compassionate, present, mindful care at end of life. Because the predominant model had been the medical model. Don't tell anyone. Use a lot of medication and hang on as long as you can. So, because of Norman and many others, there began to be this new way um, to talk about the quality that people and their families and their caregivers could experience at the end of their life. And so from there forward, Zen Hospice has um, trained and educated and provided volunteers and sat at thousands of bedsides. We did a calculation. It was 400,000 hours of volunteer time in the last 20 years spent at the bedside. But times have changed, and there are thousands of hospices today. The challenge is that the medical model is still very strong. Most of them are affiliated with hospitals. Even for those of us who've worked in independent nonprofits, um, which I've done both as a hospice medical social worker, what we want to see in terms of compassionate, open presence is secondary to what often goes on in these wonderful hospices, and they are wonderful. But there's a vision to take this practice that we share further into the hospice movement. And the only way that we can do that is to learn and to practice and to lead from the inside. So that's the future. And in that, we have collectively the absolutely wonderful ability to care for each other. 
people who are Zen hospice volunteers for the last 20 years, I've, Jennifer's compiled a lot of writings that people have done, and people talk a lot about how being here with you changes my life as a volunteer as profoundly as your process of leaving changes you. And that's the community that we're going to create for each other. So the fundraising for the Zen Hospice Project isn't really any different than what it was to create the San Francisco Zen Center or what it was to create Spirit Rock, um, what it is to create IMC. It's a matter of collectively we're going to build something new and collectively we're going to make it work. We're going to be volunteers. We're going to be caregivers. We're going to do all the things that we normally do in our lives. But we need a point of focus. And that's the role of the Zen Hospice in the Buddhist community in the Bay Area. We want to offer ourselves as the point of focus to help this community and every community in need to have the kind of experience that Norman describes in the hospice movement. We call it the good death. And it's each individual's choice, of course, how they wish to die based on their life and their practice. But collectively, we can build something that exists nowhere else and provide a new level of compassionate leadership for a population that is rapidly aging all across this country. So it's a four million dollar campaign. Two million dollars have been raised. There are two million dollars to go. Um, I think in the beginning of everything, people said it couldn't be done. It's one of the things I got out of listening to Gill's tape this week about when IMC started as a group of three or four people before Gil ever even arrived. So there are donation envelopes here tonight, and there is the Donna box, as we all know. And the fact is, is that over the next few months, you'll be hearing about this effort to build a new Zen hospice. And we need your help. We ask for your support. We're open to your participation in any way that feels right to you. And uh, it's a real privilege to get to be able to say this in my own sangha for the first time. So thank you. And um, on a practical note, Jennifer has asked me to remind you that in the little flyer, you'll see that here in July, she's going to be um, doing a workshop on death and dying or with the Zen hospice approach. So, of course, you're invited to participate in that as in anything we do. So, may you be well, may you be happy, and thank you. <laughs>